Now we've covered much ground in these services. We've learned that prayer is about remembering our Father which art in heaven. Prayer is about reverencing, hallowed be thy name. Prayer is about ruling, thy kingdom come. Prayer is about resigning, thy will be done. Prayer is about requesting, give us this day our daily bread. Prayer is about releasing and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And we come uh, into this uh, model prayer once again this morning. And uh, we're in a section where we're praying about our daily needs. We've called on the Father, seeking the supplies we need day by day. We've prayed for forgiveness of sins that are a part of our daily lives as well. And here today we want to address another need that arises on a daily basis. We seek help in the battle with sin and with temptation. And you'll notice in verse 13, it begins with the word and. This word ties this request in with the request for our daily needs, or our bread, and as well as our forgiveness and for grace to forgive others. Now as we've moved through these phrases that make up this great model prayer, we began at the feet of our Father in heaven, praising Him, professing our desire to see His kingdom come and His will be done on this earth, just as it is in heaven. We also descended from the mountains of glory into the valley of our daily express, uh, experience. We've confessed our dependence upon Him for the necessities of the body and the soul. And now we descend even further as we consider the possibility that just as sin has blighted our past, even greater sins may lie upon the horizon of our lives. This verse is all about trusting the Lord in the greatest battle that we face in life. It's not a battle to put food on our tables or clothes on our back. This is not a battle to approach God for forgiveness or even a battle to forgive those who've treated us wrongly. Rather, it's a battle we all face every day as we fight the temptations of the flesh and the attacks of the devil. And so we're going to look at relying and rejoicing. Let's pray as we come to God's word this morning. Father in heaven, we pray that as we once again look at this model prayer, not as a prayer to be recited over and over again, not a prayer that kind of gains us some privilege or blessing or grace with you, but a prayer that teaches us how to pray and what to pray about. And Lord, we are a needy people. We are all tempted with sin on a daily basis, and we need your power, we need your strength. And so as we look at this prayer concerning this particular battle, we pray that you'll speak to our hearts and teach us, help us to grow in our Christian life as a result of being here this morning. There's someone who does not know Christ as their Savior. We pray that even the Spirit of God would take the Scripture and work it in their heart to see their need for a Savior. Because if there is someone who's here this morning who's not saved, they cannot 
have answers to prayers no matter how many times they pray this prayer. They need to be changed. They need to be they need to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that the Spirit of God would work in their hearts as well. Bless our time in the Word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, prayer is about relying. Relying. Verse 13 says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I want you to notice, first of all, the problem of temptation. The Lord tells us here to pray and lead us not into temptation. This is a simple request, literally beams over, brims over with, with meaning. A few minutes spent looking at these words, I think will help us to uh, know the battle that we have or to deal with the battle that we have with temptation. This statement presupposes the leadership of the Lord in our lives. Is the Lord your leader? Is Jesus Christ the Lord of your life? And that word Lord means master. And uh, who is the master of your life? I think we would all agree that our Heavenly Father is a sovereign God. He controls all of life and He leads His dear children along. As the writer of the old hymn says, since this is true, does it also mean that God leads us into places where we're tempted to sin? Well, of course, the answer to that question is absolutely not. James addresses this problem in James chapter 1 and verse 13. When Adam was, attempt, or was tempted and fell into sin in the Garden of Eden, he tried to lay the blame at the feet of the Lord. But the fault did not lie with the Lord. The fault was with Adam and Adam alone. God never leads us into a direction to have contact, direct contact with, God, with sin. But as we travel the path of life, every crossroads along the way brings us the option to take a path which leads us away from the Lord and His will. Every trial we face comes complete with the potential of failure. We may sin, and when we do, the fault lies with us and not with God. So when the Lord tells us to pray, and here's what I think this petition requests, Lord, please do not lead me into a trial which is, will present temptation stronger than the power to resist it. And since that is true, then where does temptation come from? Well, James tells us very clearly that temptation arises from within the human heart. In James 1 and verse 14 and 15, he very clearly explains this. This is one of the passages we looked at on our Wednesday night Bible study. And by the way, our Wednesday night Bible study is about, about sanctification. And we need to uh, realize that there's a process of sanctification that takes place in a Christian's heart as they grow in the Lord. But the flesh is hopelessly flawed and given over to sin. Temptation comes our way, and it is not the devil's fault, it's not the Lord's fault, it's not the world's fault, it's our fault. We have been flawed, and we have a fallen nature that craves sin in all of its vileness. And that may be hard to swallow, but it's true. Temptation in of itself is not a sin. 
But the very instant that temptation is embraced and pursued, the sin is a result. For example, David in 2 Samuel 11, just seeing Bathsheba on the rooftop bathing was not a sin. But when she was desired and pursued, then sin had been born and the end of that sin was death and destruction. Now, when I pray as I should, I'm calling on my Heavenly Father and I'm praising Him, I'm seeking His will, I'm confessing my dependence upon Him for every need of my life. And when I pray, forgive me my debts, I'm looking back to the past. When I pray, give me this day my daily bread, I'm looking at the present. But when I pray, lead me not into temptation, I'm looking into the future. And having just dealt with the issue of my past sins before the Lord, the saint who prays this prayer is declaring an awareness that sin may happen again. It also expresses the fear that an even greater sin may occur. Those who have been forgiven at the throne of grace live in fear of sinning against the Lord who has so graciously forgiven them. And the essence of this prayer is not for protection from the sins of the flesh so that God is not dishonored again. I should say the essence of this prayer is for protection from the sins of the flesh so that God is not honored or dishonored again. No man should face the future with a fear or uh, of, of, uh, without a clear past. When sin has been dealt with, the cleansed soul has a deep fear of falling again. How many of us have been there? We sin and we go before God, we confess it and we vow, we promise God, I'm going to never do that again. And yet the temptation comes to us again, doesn't it? And before we know it, we've committed that same sin all over again, and I think we've all been there. This prayer is a prayer for protection along the way of life. And listen, we carry sinful flesh with us every minute we live. We need help. We're a needy people. We need a helper who is greater than we are. We need one who is, will strengthen us in the times of temptation. So we notice here, first of all, that uh, we have the problem of temptation. Secondly, the power of temptation. The need for us to pray for the Lord's protection from temptation is so great because we are so prone to failure. We have already discovered that drive for sin our hunger for sin, our capacity for sin, how it dwells within our own hearts. The heart is desperately wicked, Jeremiah tells us. Temptation is merely an outgrowth of what we are by nature. And that's why it's so often hard for us to resist. We often say things like, man, the devil really knows what to put in front of me. The truth is, it is we and not so much the devil that we have the problem with. You remember, the devil is not omnipresent. The devil is not everywhere. He doesn't hold that capacity. I don't think the devil has, uh, cares two, two bits about me. I'm not that important. Now, he may want to have one of his junior demons come and, and tempt me or do something, but... Uh, it's not the devil. Most of the time it's just Daryl, not the devil. 
That's why temptation has a strong pull in our lives, because we live with ourselves all the, every day of the life, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We can't get away from ourselves. Sometimes we wish we could, but we can't. We are drawn away of our own lust and enticed, it says in James 1 and verse 14. The word entice comes from a word that means to bait. And when we're tempted, the old man is baiting the new man to go back to the old way of life. Of course, when the devil knows what tempts our flesh, he'll see to it that those things are constantly placed before us in hopes that we will sin and disgrace the name of the Lord. The old man baiting the new man. We talked a little bit about fishing here a while back, how some of you folks who go fishing are really deceivers. Well, it's the same way in our, in our lives. Just like you deceive that fish into thinking that worm is a good meal, there's a hook in it. And so it is with many of the temptations that come our way. Temptation is a powerful opponent. But most Christians have no idea of its real power. Sometimes you'll even hear people say, the temptation was so powerful I just couldn't resist. Some say about that about chocolate sometimes. But uh, you know, when you go into to other things that tempt us. But in truth, the person who gives in to temptation's allure knows nothing at all of its power. Only the person who stands against it and wins the victory over it will testify to a great power temptation has. You know, ever notice how powerful the undertow in an ocean or rip currents are? Uh, we probably don't have too many rip currents in the lakes around Spooner here, but uh, we lived uh, pretty close to Lake Michigan. And they were always giving warnings out there. When we lived in Indiana, we lived close to Lake Michigan. And they were giving warnings about the rip currents and how dangerous it was to go out into that, uh, that, uh, that lake when the winds were blowing and... and when you, are, you yield to its power, it took you where you did not want to go. And the going was easy. But when you tried to go against its pull, only then could you feel the real power of those rip currents. And so it is with temptation and sin. When we yield to the attractions of the flesh and the world, we find the going easy. As temptation takes us where it pleases. But when we stand our ground and we've refused to yield to its call, we find that out just how much the pull of the flesh and that sin has on our lives. But now, thank God, the power of temptation has no more force in our lives than we allow it to have. If we wish to stand against it, we can. Our Lord has given us some gracious and precious promises that serve to strengthen us in the midst of our temptations and guarantees us victory over them all if we yield to His power and His will and not to the temptation. And so we have the problem of temptation, we have the power of temptation, and then thirdly, we have the plea, the plea in temptation. This verse closes here with the words, but deliver us from evil. The phrase carries with it the idea, but deliver us from the evil one. You see, every Christian has an enemy who hates you and wants nothing more than to see you fall and to fail. 
And the ultimate goal of the enemy is to use you to bring disgrace and dishonor to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and to God the Father. This enemy, of course, is the devil. I said he wasn't omnipresent, but he sure is powerful. And his influences do influence us. He may not have direct contact with us, but his influences do influence us. It says in the Bible, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principality, uh, principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Ephesians 6.12 Our enemy this morning is not the person who disagrees with this, Our enemy is not the church that has abandoned the old paths to embrace a new Bible and a new music. Our enemy is not the charismatic church that is down the road. Our enemy does not wear a body of flesh and blood. Our enemy is spiritual in nature, and he must be battled with spiritual weapons. This phrase is a plea for God's help in the battle with this enemy. And when we pray this prayer, we recognize the fact that we are unable to wage this war on our own. And therefore, we call on the name of the Lord, employing His power to stand against the devil in the battle with temptation and sin. Now this, of course, was a tactic that was used by the Lord Jesus Christ in His own time of temptation. You find in Matthew chapter 4, back in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, Jesus was tempted. What did He do? He turned to the spiritual resources of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, and he made his victorious stand against evil. Our success lies in doing the very same thing. We are to appropriate the resources we've been given in the spirit of the the person of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Word of God. We are to dress up in the whole armor of God, take our stand, as it tells us in Ephesians chapter 6. And by the way, the phrase, having, all, having done all to stand, has the idea of fighting to the standstill. We are to take our stand against the flesh and the devil, and when we have fought to a standstill, that is, when we ex- have exhausted all of our strength, we'll find that the Lord is by our side to give us victory over temptation, sin, and Satan. He will not fail us in the day of battle, but he will give us absolute victory for his great glory. After all, he's ever near us. He's our helper. And he has more at stake in our battles than we do. Listen, victory is ours in the battle with temptation. We are challenged to pray about our need in this battle, and we are to trust the Lord to deliver us in the hour of temptation, and he will do his part. Now let me caution you about something. Do not pray this prayer if you plan on placing yourself in places and situations where you will be tempted. For instance, do not pray for the Lord to deliver you from the temptation of lust if you plan on going home and turning on an explicit video. Do not pray for the Lord to deliver you from temptation to commit sexual sin if you're going to engage in flirtation and sexual activity outside of marriage. Don't pray for the Lord to deliver you from temptation to drink if you're insisting on eating your meals in a bar. Don't waste your time praying this prayer if if your feet constantly lead you toward evil. You, You understand what I'm saying? Do you get the picture? 
Victory is available, but only for those who are serious about waging war on lust that dwells within us, that, and, and we, when we, ex, we will experience the Lord's victory. Listen, do you need help in the battle of temptation? Well, if you're alive this morning, you do. If you need something from the Lord, or if you wish to seek His help in avoiding the pitfalls of sin, then you need to come before Him and look to Him for your strength to stand, and having done all, to stand. Prayer is about relying. It's relying upon the, the God of heaven to give you strength in the battle against temptation. Now notice, secondly, prayer is about rejoicing. If you read some commentators regarding this verse, they will tell you that these words are not in the oldest nor the best manuscripts. And so they say these words were really not spoken by Jesus, but they were added later by someone who copied the scriptures. And yet I am of the opinion that God has preserved his holy word. He has guarded it in its transmission through the years, and we have in our hands this morning exactly what the Lord wants us to have. Now, having said that, the precious prayer ends as it begins. Jesus taught us to begin our praying with praise. We are told to pray, hallowed be thy name. Now we're called to rejoice in who God is and the power that he holds. It says here in the end of this verse, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In a world filled with trials and troubles and problems, it's a comfort to serve a God who is worthy of all praise and the glory we can give him. It's a comfort to find someone and something to rejoice about. And so we see here that prayer is about rejoicing. First of all, we can rejoice in his preeminence. His preeminence. It says, for thine is the kingdom. What does that mean? It means he is sovereign. He is sovereign. When we say God is sovereign, here's what we mean. The word means independent and holding complete power. It comes from an English word, uh, comes to English from the Latin language where it's meant over and above. And that's what God is. He is over and above this world. And as we look around this world this morning, we may look at like Satan. It may look like Satan and the forces of evil are running the show. In fact, what we see is a visible physical kingdom dominated by fallen men and a creature called the devil. And when we, we, what we cannot see is that there is also an invisible spiritual kingdom dominated by an all-powerful God. A God who's working out his perfect eternal plan in the world. The Bible is very clear. The God we serve is all-powerful and in absolute control of all things. Notice what it says in Isaiah 43 and verse 13. Yea, before the day was, I am he. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work, and who shall let it? Isaiah 46 and verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure, calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country. Yea, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. 
And then Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. So things may look like they're spiraling out of control today, but I want you to know that it was not the president who messed things up. And it wasn't George Bush's fault either. It may look like the world is going crazy, but I assure you that God is, has the situation well in hand this morning. All things, even evil things, are working according to His plan. And when the smoke settles and the dust clears, God's will is going to stand preeminent and His purposes will be brought to pass. And therefore, rejoice, Christian. Our Father is still on the throne, and no one can ever dethrone Him. Now, when this prayer was taught, we need to remember that Caesar was in control in Rome. In all of his power, he literally ruled the world. The Roman Empire stretched from the British Isles all the way across the Mediterranean and far, uh, as far away as India. Caesar had power over every man, woman, and child in the known world. And yet Jesus says to pray, thine is the kingdom. This was a time when Caesar was ruling the world with all his royalty, his rings, and his robes, his power, and his pomp, and his circumstance of, all, of a great court. This was a man who was pointing his finger, snapping his fingers. He could change a person's life. He was signed, the signing of his name could literally change the course of history. And a time when he was reigning, a little town called Bethlehem in a stable, there was a little baby that was born. And those two kingdoms began to parallel, Caesar's and Christ, the palace and the stable. And one day they came into open conflict, and at the conclusion of which the stable emerged victorious. Thine, O Lord, is the kingdom. And when we pray this, as did the early Christians who were not bowing to Caesar, but looking to God, they prayed, Thine is the kingdom, not Caesar's. Don't let a lost, cynical world tell you that God is out of business. He's still on the throne, and the kingdom of this world is His. And one day the announcement will come from glory, and what will be revealed to all on that day is reality today. And so we find here that he is sovereign. Secondly, he is supreme. Our Lord rules this morning because it is the right, his right to do so. You see, when man was created and placed in Eden, he was given dominion over this world. And when man sinned, he gave that dominion back. He gave it away. Now Satan, not man, is the God of this world. And when Jesus came into the world and died on the cross and rose from the dead and redeemed everything the first Adam had given away, he paid the price and he stripped the evil pretender Satan of all of his dreams of ruling the universe. Our God, and not Satan, is the supreme being in the universe. And since that's true, he alone deserves our worship, our love, and our devotion, our allegiance. Therefore, when we pray this prayer, we acknowledge his supremacy and our own subjection to the Lord as our sovereign Lord. We are acknowledged that he is our king and we are his servants. And this implies we are his and his alone. And yet we still use the word my 
to describe the things we claim to to possess. You know, it's my money. It's my job. It's my life. I'll live it the way I want. It's my house. It's my family. It's my church. It's my this and my that. It's my, 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 my. May the Lord help us to remember that all we have and all that we are is due to his kindness and his grace. All I'm saying is that when we pray, we need to learn to humble ourselves before the God of heaven and acknowledge his sovereignty in our lives and rejoice in his preeminence. Since he's in control, he has the authority to grant our request. Now, the second thing I notice here in rejoicing, we can rejoice in his power. It says, for thine is the kingdom and the power. Several things about this power I want you to notice quickly. His power is enormous. We've already established the fact that God is sovereign. He's in control. We're told to rejoice in the fact that he has power to control things as well. Listen, we do not serve some anemic, weak God, some old man sitting in a rocking chair up in heaven. That's not who we serve. We serve the God of power and ability. He can do anything he pleases to do, but he holds all power. He's almighty God. Genesis 18, 14 says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. The Lord told Abraham. In Job, Job 42 and verse 2, it says, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. In Psalm, the psalmist says in Psalm 62, 11, God has spoken once. Twice have I heard this, that power belongeth unto God. Jeremiah 32, 17, Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by the great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. Matthew 19 and verse 26, And Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And as well in Mark it tells us in Mark ten twenty seven, and Jesus looking upon them then saith, "With men it is impossible, but with God for all with God all things are are possible." The apostle Paul reminds us in Ephesians three and verse twenty, "Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us." Praise God for His power; it's enormous. Secondly, his power is eternal. We're told that all things, his kingdom, his power, his glory, are forever. Another great attribute of God is his uh, immutability. That word immutable means unchanging or unable to change. Do you need blank? Well, he can do it. Since our Lord has all power, he can grant your requests. We can rejoice in his power. Thirdly, we can rejoice in his personality. It says, For thine is the glory, or the kingdom, and the power, and the glory. First of all, he alone deserves glory. Everything God is doing as he exercises his preeminence and his power is for his glory. 
It's not all about you. It's not all about me. It's about God and his glory. Psalm has said in Psalm 8 and verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name on, in the all, all the earth who has set thy glory above the heavens. You know, as we pass through life, we often try to accumulate glory for ourselves. And yet God alone deserves all glory. If we would ever learn this simple truth, it would revolutionize our lives, and even our church, and our praying. Perhaps one reason we do not see our prayers answered is because we do not seek His glory first. Perhaps one reason we do not see more people saved is because we do not desire that for His glory alone. Perhaps one reason revival tarries in our day is because we do not seek it for His glory. He alone deserves glory. Secondly, He alone determines glory. We're told that His kingdom, His power, and His glory are forever. This is a great promise that we can rejoice in. He will ever possess the kingdom, the power, and the glory. But I just want to point out that He and He alone determines who will share that glory someday. I wonder this morning, are you saved? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? If you are, then you know something of his preeminence, his power, and his personality. If you're saved, then one day you will share in that glory. Not just a few days, but forever. That's something to rejoice in. Now this great model prayer closes with the word, Amen. What does Amen mean? A lot of us say it, but we really never stop to think how to use it, or how we use it. Some interesting things about this word, amen. It's the last word in the Bible. Jesus' first word in John 1.51 was amen. Among the last words in the life of Jesus while he was on the cross was the word amen, Luke 23.43. You'll find the word amen 25 times in the Old Testament. Amen is found 125 times in the New Testament. It's often translated in the Bible as verily, verily. Sometimes we use it to sign off our prayers. It's like saying, 10-4, Lord, or over and out. Or something like that. But that's not really what it means in the Bible. It's not just a sign-off word. It means, so be it. Let it be true. It means, I affirm this. And in some language, such as in New Guinea, it means true. If you were to go to Parliament in Great Britain, you would hear someone say, true, true. Sometimes they might say, hear, hear. But they often say, true, true. And that's what they're saying. They're saying, amen, amen. Now it also has the meaning of, be, of yes, so when you see the word amen, it means, whether it is in Greek or Aramaic, it means true, or let it be so. And that's why the scripture in the scripture it says, For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him amen, unto the glory of God by us. 2 Corinthians 1.20 And this means that all the promises of God are yes, 
in God. All the promises of, of God are truly, verily, true. Let it be so in Christ. And when the last word is amen, it means thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Yes, yes, truly, 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 verily, verily, let it be so. Amen and amen. And so when Jesus instructed us to pray like this, we end with the confirmation of his promises. We say, so be it. It's going to be just like you said it would, Lord. So the next time you say amen, think about that. As we close our thoughts on the model prayer, we're reminded that God to whom we pray is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And altogether lovely and glorious beyond words. This should give us a reason to rejoice. Even as we journey through the world that's harsh and it's wicked and it's evil, we should rejoice even as we fight our battles in, the, in this life. Prayer is about rejoicing. It's about rejoicing in His preeminence, His power, and His personality as our Heavenly Father. We're to rejoice because all that is His is ours. Because we belong to Him. I trust it. That's your testimony this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this great prayer. Again, not a prayer to be recited mindlessly, but a prayer that instructs us on how to pray. And there is great meaning to every phrase. We pray, Lord, as we meditate upon the things that we've heard these last few weeks, we just pray that It'll help our prayer life to improve and to grow and to uh, recognize the great principles that are, are involved. And this morning we pray, Lord, even as we think of the word amen. It's not just a word that means the end, but it means let it be so, or so be it. Your promises are precious and they're true. And Lord, we pray that our prayer life will be according to your word and to your will. If there are needs in the lives of those here this morning, we pray that decisions will be made for the Lord Jesus Christ to walk closer to him. If there's someone that needs to be saved, we pray that today they would realize their need for a savior. And so, Lord, bless our invitation time, and we pray this in Jesus' name. So be it. Amen. Number 405. 405. We stand and sing on that first verse. Number 405. Simply trusting. Putting our faith and our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Day by day. If you need to know the Lord, come to know the Lord. Some will be, able, uh, be glad to take God's word and share it with you this morning. That you can simply put your trust every day, no matter what the day brings, whether it's stormy or calm, simply trust Jesus. That is all. Let's stand as we sing. You come. <laughs> sing.
simply trusting every day, trusting through a stormy way. Even when my faith is small, trusting Jesus. Now